Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 468 with Michael Lennox. Um, trust your team first, early and often, and ask questions later. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify that's cabbage with a k line of credit is subject to credit approval see terms and conditions all cabbage business loans are issued by celtic bank a utah chartered industrial bank member fdic what's sorcery sorcery is ap automation digital invoicing and time and money saved that's Sorcery. Sorcery allows you to streamline and digitize your entire accounts payable operation. Digital invoicing backed with human verification will save you countless hours of work and increase AP accuracy. Say goodbye to your file cabinets and enter the digital world. Go to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com or call 1-866-830-0691. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you will receive 10% off your first three months with no setup fees. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Michael Lennox. Michael, are you feeling unstoppable today? I'm feeling pretty good, Eric. Nice. That is what we like to hear. So Michael Lennox is a 33-year-old Atlanta native. Prior to his career as a restaurateur, Lennox practiced law in Atlanta, having returned to his hometown after college in Virginia and law school in North Carolina. Lennox took his first swing at the restaurant industry in 2014 with Lady Bird Grove in Mess Hall. Following Lady Bird's success, Lennox opened sister restaurants Muchacho and Golden Eagle in the fall of 2017 to much acclaim. I can't wait to dive into your story and to learn more about how you got to where you are, Michael. Uh, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you have for us? Um, I'm kind of a big quote and analogy guy, uh, but one of the ones that stands out for me is a Thomas Edison quote, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration, uh, with the idea that any sort of creative pursuit is really more about the follow through and the hard work, uh, as opposed to just, you know, sitting on your laurels with the idea itself. Yeah. And I think that that statement couldn't be more true for this industry. I think it's, it's, it's like, uh, exaggerated in this industry. Would you agree? <laughs> no, a hundred percent. Great, man. Yeah. That's, that's something we talk about all the time. Yeah. So um, I'm curious. I mean, you have a really interesting background. Most people don't take the path that you took to get to uh, where you are today as a, a, a successful restaurateur. So uh, I guess, uh, where did it all start for you? Um, did you always know you wanted to get into the restaurant industry? Why did you take the route of being a lawyer first? Like, how does that, that all kind of play out? Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, certainly would not recommend 
at going to law school as a prerequisite to getting in, into the restaurant business. And the route I took was uh, circumstantial in a lot of ways, but this is something that's sort of uh, been in my blood for a long time. And it took a long time for me to come to grips with wanting to jump into the restaurant business. I didn't really have like, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't raised in a restaurant family, didn't wait tables in high school, uh, didn't work as a dishwasher kind of coming up through the kitchen or anything like that. So I have enormous respect for folks that get their feet wet really early and, and work their way up. Um, but yeah, as far as, as far as I'm concerned, I grew up in a single parent household for the majority of my childhood. I've got two younger brothers. My mom worked all the time. And so, uh, she's not much of a cook to begin with. And during middle school, if we were going to have anything interesting to eat at all, uh, beyond, you know, cereal or something in the microwave, I'd have to, I'd have to cook it. And so I kind of took it upon myself to try to figure out how to, uh, make food a little bit more interesting based on what we got on hand and started to get into cookbooks and, and recipes and all that jazz. Um, and that sort of took on a life of its own, got more and more into restaurants recreationally, uh, on through high school, never really took it seriously as a pursuit, but just enjoyed it. And then, Toward the end of college, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. Had a psychology degree, didn't know if I wanted to go to grad school, uh, really just was completely rudderless, and ended up getting the uh, Culinary Institute of America uh, textbook that's standard issue for CIA students for Christmas, my senior year of college, and took a year off from school, lived with my girlfriend at the time, she's not my wife, and basically just cooked my way through it while I worked odd jobs and really became pretty serious just recreationally. Um, but still didn't have any real goal of getting into the, into the business. I don't know if it was fear or, or whatever else, uh, ended up deciding to go to law school. My mom's a lawyer. My uncle is a lawyer. It was kind of beat into my head from early on that I would make a good lawyer for some reason, um, decided to do it out of, a lack of, of perceived better options at the time knew pretty much immediately once I landed at law school that that was not something I wanted to do for the rest of my life and probably uh, ended up cooking, frankly, in my free time more than I studied. Um, but started, started law school in 2008. The economy was in the pits. It was, uh, I started a couple weeks after Lehman Brothers collapsed. And so law jobs started to, disappear at a record clip. By the time I got out, by then it was extremely well established in my head that this was just going to be a short-term temporary bridge for me to fill time until I could figure out something better to do. I ended up moving back to Atlanta, uh, had a real tough go of it trying to get a decent law job. Um, ended up working really part-time for a solo practitioner who works with tech startups and did just kind of generic grunt work for him, preparing legal documents and contracts and that sort of thing. Um, but after being exposed to kind of the startup world, seeing clients that were really excited about starting businesses, uh, it wasn't really food related, but 
I knew pretty quick that I aligned more with the folks on the other end of the table than I did with the guys in suits doing all the paperwork. <laughs> so all the while, uh, it had been sort of a slow burn behind the scenes in terms of my interest in food, kept up with the, you know, what was what restaurant wise in Atlanta, but also New York, LA, Chicago, uh, had a incredibly fast growing cookbook collection, cooked all the time outside of work, had a list of my long of different restaurant ideas. And after working for about a year as a lawyer, really not making any money, hating every minute of it. I was like, you know, this is, Life is too short. This sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I got to figure something else out. Like, what this, year is it at this point? I'm curious, Michael. This was like 2011, 2012. Okay. So, uh, uh, okay. Uh, so I'm curious. When you said that you were uh, doing the um, the restaurant thing recreationally, were you working in restaurants like as like a recreation for fun or were you just like looking into like the restaurant scene? Uh, did you ever work in a restaurant up to this point or was it just like kind of fantasy at this point? No, not, not really. I guess what I meant by that is my, if I wasn't working or just hanging around the house, my number one recreational activity was simply to like go, go out to eat somewhere, figure out what was new and exciting. Okay. Uh, Atlanta has an area called Buford highway, which is like uh, sort of an international corridor where there's a lot of immigrant populations from all over the world. And it has a ton of Vietnamese restaurants, Korean restaurants, uh, taquerias, et cetera. And so that was kind of like my thing and just took it really seriously. Tried to stay on top of, uh, you know, who's opening restaurants, where, what's, what's happening in town. And all the while was, uh, kind of looking at kind of coming back to Atlanta after living out of state and traveling a fair bit, trying to see where the city is going to go and seeing it through a different lens from the standpoint of, you know, I grew up here. I take a lot of this for granted, but Atlanta could be a much, you know, more interesting city, particularly in the urban core. And it has a stereotype of it being this gridlocked, uh, traffic choked, sprawled place. But if you get closer in, there's a ton of interesting historic neighborhoods and uh, a lot of potential for walkability that, up until very recently, was pretty untapped. And so all. While all this is going on in the background, the the city was um, arranging to deploy this very long-term, big-scale project called the Atlanta Beltline, which is a 20-mile loop of abandoned uh, rail lines that circle the city, and it's a they have you know a billion dollars committed to build this out into a network of trails, eventually an above ground streetcar kind of rail system. And it forms a loop around the city, which means Marta goes north and south, east and west, it forms across. If you have a circle, you start to have these quadrants and uh, pockets where you have transit connectivity that really would change how people get around the city. And so when I started to get into understanding the Beltline, because it was a very new early stage concept and not really a project in 2008, 2009. It, it was, it really informed how I view wanting to move back to Atlanta and participate in the future city and Ladybird and really all the restaurants now are, are on the Beltline. Um, so this is just a very long winded way of saying I had 
discombobulated ideas in my head of uh, maybe trying to open a restaurant, but not knowing how to do it, not working in a restaurant, seeing kind of real estate trends moving in a certain direction, but not really knowing how to attack that. And fast forward to 2000, end of 2012, the first two and a half mile segment of the Beltline opened. It's called the East Side Trail. It's in the northeast part of the city, about a mile and a half east of downtown. It runs along this area where there's a lot of uh, old rail warehouses and uh, turn of the century kind of industrial buildings. Once they cut the ribbon, uh, my wife and I were able to bike from our house over to it and see a lot of these buildings for the first time. And I've lived in Atlanta my entire life, know the city really well. And it, it was transformative just to be able to see parts of the city in a new way that I didn't even really know existed. And it, it sort of crystallized all the ideas that I had as far as uh, what Atlanta needed on the restaurant side that was currently lacking and also what works really well in other markets that I thought would work well in Atlanta. So uh, toward the end of the year, right after the Beltline opened, the first time I saw the back of the building that Lady Bird is now in, it it was like, you know, a piano fell on my head. Um, I had had this concept for an outdoor-oriented uh, beer garden space uh, for probably five years at this point. And the second I saw it, I was like, all right, well, that's, that's it. Uh, it looked completely different from what it does now, but I just couldn't shake the thought of this being the right moment and the right time. And if, if I wasn't going to do it, somebody else will. So, and so 2008, 2008, 2009 was kind of, you started noticing, you already knew you weren't happy doing what you're doing with law. It wasn't fulfilling you. Uh, you were passionate about food and beverage. You were learning on your own, uh, going out, studying the, the, the industry, looking at trends, knowing what's going on in your, your neighborhood. And it was, when you heard about the Beltline that you were thinking to yourself, okay, there's going to be a ton of opportunity in these, these neighborhoods that aren't uh, once this, this rail system gets put in, um, it's just going to like, you know, bring a ton of life to these communities. And, and is that basically how you were thinking like, Oh, there's gonna be a ton of opportunity here. Is that what was going through your mind? Yeah. I mean, it, it, because the perception is that Atlanta doesn't have a lot of like, it bulldozes all its historic buildings and uh, there's some truth to it, but there's a ton that are still kind of up for grabs waiting to be repurposed as something interesting. The Beltline coincides with having really good location proximity to uh, a lot of neighborhoods that have a lot going on combined with underutilized historic buildings that have natural charm and character to it. And uh, around 2010 or 11, there were two huge developments going on adjacent to the Beltline, sort of on opposite ends in between where Ladybird is now. And I could, I just sort of saw the trade winds blowing where if uh, this developer Jamestown is putting $300 million into Pont City Market a mile north, and then Pace's Properties is doing a $100 million uh, project called, that would become Crog Street Market a quarter mile south. This was right when food halls started to become a thing and both of them have these kind of big fleshy food halls. Um, it seemed like there was enough market forces going on in this area that if I could be first in line and put a big, you know, interesting restaurant 
right in the middle of that, I'd be well positioned to capitalize on uh, you know the foot traffic that would come from having more things to do on the belt line. Okay. Um, so what was going on with the law at this time when you're, when all these thoughts are going through your mind, were you, were you still practicing? Was it something that you, you kind of knew that you were going to give up on and how did you kind of, um, how did you build up the, I guess, uh, audacity to, to, to step away from something that was such an investment for you? Uh, how do you overcome that? Yeah. So I think part of it was, easy because I just disliked it so much that, uh, you know, it was kind of like anything but doing this yeah. will de facto be better. Um, but after about a year, I, as a stopgap, ended up working for a small real estate development group and had no real background in that. Wasn't doing any legal work for them, but was just kind of like an analyst. So it was crunching numbers in Excel and uh, what year was this? Like collection and things like that. This was 2012. Okay. So got out of law school 2011, worked as a lawyer for about a year, middle of 2012, worked with this small real estate group, and then did that for about a year, which overlapped with me kind of getting things going with Lady Bird on the front end, behind the scenes. Um, and so the way I describe it is like I'm kind of an inch deep and a mile wide. Like I've got some mild skill and background in law, a little bit in real estate. Um, I'm adept at Excel to a certain extent. So like that's helpful with the analytics and just kind of understanding the finances, mm-hmm. but it's not like I've worked for 10 years in several fields and it's sort of all coming together. Okay. Well, there's a lot of value. I think, you know, I, I say a lot on the show that like you, there's so many things you need to be good at in the hospitality industry to open a restaurant, uh, business front like front of house back of house uh you know the finance like all those things uh real estate like you mentioned law uh the, the legal things uh the, the the crunching the numbers like you mentioned like so many of these things are so important that like there's so many points of entry uh, to get into this industry or even like marketing or branding is another way to see a lot of people getting into this industry so uh, it does make sense that you know having all this experience in these different markets or these different industries uh can pre- well pre- you know make you prepared to become a restaurant tour, but I'm curious, br- bring us to the point where you, uh, were just like, I'm all in, like, I, I, I'm going to be opening this restaurant. Uh, like when, like, when did you know that was going to happen? And what did you start doing to live intentionally to get there? Yeah. So basically when I saw the back of this building on the belt line for the first time, that's, that was when I was like, I, this is going to eat me alive if I just don't go for it. And okay. I can't really explain why or when, but I was just so convinced that the belt line was going to be, you know, the thing in Atlanta that there's a limited amount of space to do something on it. And if I play my cards right, this could really be like something I'm really excited about and people would really get a kick out of it. And so that was like end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And I ended up signing a lease without a business plan, without investors, without even having like any financial uh, means of pulling it off just on a speculative basis because I, I believe so strongly in that if I wasn't going to do this, somebody else will. So I'm just going to have to figure this out. So um, real quick, uh, before we but, go further, um, I want to try to speak try to see if I can't extract some nuggets from you as somebody who had experience in the real estate industry. What made this location? Uh, what are the, the, the key things that, you know, uh, you were looking at that said, you know, this, this is going to be a good move. Like this is a good spot. Like what made you so confident that, that that was going to happen? Like this, this area is going to blow up. Um, 
So, I mean, it, it was already across the trail from uh, a pretty well-known steakhouse called Rathen Steak. And when they originally located there, it was kind of like slightly edgy, a little gritty, but they had been there for 10 years and their patio, which is, they have a small patio, but uh, the back of their building backed up to the belt line, but the belt line before this was a project used to be like overgrown barbed wire fence, like junk everywhere. And so they tried to, for, for obvious reasons, uh, treated it as if like, you know, just don't worry about what's happening at the back of the property. We're in a cool warehouse. Like, you know, this is a, this is a fun place. Once the belt line came, that sort of reversed everyone's orientation. And so you, you literally can't see Ladybird from the road and people in Atlanta are really into patios. We have pretty good weather. Uh, just hanging out on a patio outside is, is a fairly easy, compelling, activity for a lot of people in town and so the thought was if we have an oversized outdoor space on a main pedestrian thoroughfare where cars can't go on it and you can't even really see a car from the patio that is the antithesis of what most big outdoor spaces are with restaurants in atlanta which are on busy roads and primary intersections where you have you know cars about 10 feet away and so uh, that combined with the fact that the surrounding neighborhood, Inman Park and Old Fourth Ward, there's a lot of restaurants already there. And there was a ton of development coming into the area and still coming into the area. It seemed like if I could just get this open, I would be, the timing would be really good going into an area that already draws a lot of people um, and has a ton of development happening close by that will make it more dense and more walkable and just kind of add fuel to the fire. Okay. So said so you said it was uh, the end of 2012, early 2013 when you, did you say signed the lease or how did you acquire the space initially? So I, I figured out who owned the building, reached out to him, just kind of cold called, said, Hey, I've got an idea for a restaurant. Do you have any space available? He said, yes, I've got one space coming up at the end of the month. Happy to show it to you. Uh, bear in mind, he's got like, a hundred suites in this one little area. And so it ended up the one space he had available ended up being the one that I was interested in. It didn't have a for rent sign or anything else. And so I was like, all right, this is like something weird's going on here. <laughs> yeah. So once he showed me the space, I started negotiating a lease on the spot and he gave me a five page residential lease that I don't think a lawyer has ever touched in a million years. I mean, it was, it was a joke. Um, and so with the legal background, I was like, all right, John, this is great. I want to figure something out, but we need to like, we need to start over and do a commercial lease. So I ended up uh, working through that with him and had just a, I felt like I had lightning in a bottle where he's kind of an unconventional landlord, uh, has a lot of property, but it's not like a big, commercial real estate outfit with uh, you know, an office and property management group or anything. It's kind of like a one man operation and felt like if I could just deal with having a fairly peculiar landlord and get across the finish line with 
a lease on an unconventional space that would be a first-generation restaurant, I'd sort of have an advantage over other restaurateurs that were looking to Nobody was really looking at doing anything on the belt line, but even so, if people were looking to open the restaurant, they'll typically have a broker, and there's a known amount of spaces that are going to be fairly obvious for restaurants. Like, this was not one of them, necessarily. Um, so, anyhow, I, once I got the, the lease negotiations going with the landlord, I ended up just conversationally having dinner with a close family friend, told wasn't really looking for investors or didn't have a business plan or anything at this point. And I was like, Hey, you know, thinking about doing this on the belt line. I think I found a space, like it could be interesting, but you know, still a long way to go. They immediately were like, Hey, what, is there anything we can do to help? I was like, well, <laughs> uh, don't have a lot of money. Might, might be, uh, worth the conversation if, if you'd be interested in investing. And so, I ended up flushing that out quite a bit, but ended up pitching them. They said they would invest and then pull in some of their friends to invest as well. Uh, I want to dive deeper into this this uh, topic of finding investors and uh, attracting onto yourself the means to make it happen. But I there's one question that's really you know nudging me right now, and I'm curious what your lawyer background uh, that that um, this unique knowledge that you had. What would have happened? If you didn't have this lawyer background, what would, what would have happened with this the residential lease that you would have probably ended up signing? Like, what what did you protect yourself from with the the knowledge that you have? I'm curious. Um, I mean, I, I feel like leases are oftentimes. Uh, I mean, if if people have good advisors and and know what they're know where they can run into trouble, then that's a different scenario. But I feel like particularly with a first timer with either little experience or if uh, somebody's a chef and they're trying to open their first restaurant, I think it's hard to expect them to have like a deep understanding of what a good commercial lease looks like. So just having the background and knowing where to protect my interests and make sure that it, I, there's no way to have like a one-sided lopsided lease, particularly if somebody is starting with like, here's my very lopsided landlord, incredibly landlord favorable residential lease. We're not going to end up with a very pro tenant commercial lease. Like that's just not realistic, but um, being able to make sure that he couldn't just terminate the lease at will stretched it out, gave, you know, got a couple options into the conversation and ended up signing on that. Um, had a number of protections as far as uh, upkeep of the space in the building. Get specific. So just, just what, what, for, what type of protections did you build into that lease that weren't there before? Well, there was, there was nothing before. I mean, it was just like, you can take over the space at such and such date. I can do whatever I want, whatever I want. We can raise the rent, whatever we want. I mean, it, it was... Uh, it was probably the worst lease I've ever seen in my entire life when we started. So what key things did you want so, to see on that lease that, that the key things that you, you jockeyed for when uh, rewriting the lease that we should be thinking of when we're negotiating a lease? Um, I mean, having, having the rent spelled out <laughs> very clearly in preordained fashion so that at every year and every period, 
it's very clear what the rent will be. The landlord shouldn't have the ability to just raise the rent willy nilly. Uh, we didn't do percentage rent. I've got uh, a 10 year lease with two five year options. I think anything shorter than like five years is really, really short for a commercial lease. And so if, if people were trying to open a restaurant and sign a lease for anything less than 10 years, it's going to be very hard to protect your investment on the space uh, over such a short period of time. So just making sure it was, it was sufficiently long, had options that I controlled and it wasn't at the mercy of the landlord. So after the 10 year period, I can automatically renew the lease. Um, and it's not, there's no kind of negotiating or renegotiating the rent. Um, I mean, the, one area that I couldn't really do a whole lot about is, is like TI, tenant improvement money. Uh, that's a relatively common component of restaurant leases or commercial leases. He's just not the kind of landlord to play that game. And so I kicked the tires, but very quickly moved on to other topics uh, and just acknowledged that if I was going to have to make any improvements or do anything to the space, like it was going to have to come out of my pocket. That being said, uh, was able to convince him to put a new roof on the building. I mean, the building is a hundred years old and it was leaking during the build out like all over the place. Okay. Uh, but it's like a 50 page lease. So, I mean, I can, <laughs> I don't know how deep you want to get. No, no, just like the little nuggets like that, uh, things that you don't consider things that, you know, you have definitely have specialized knowledge being somebody who is fluid in, um, influence in real estate and law. I was just curious to dive a little deeper in that. Um, so you sit with your friend. Who is your friend? Uh, what, what relation do you have to this person when you start talking about investment? So it was a, a close friend of mine that I went to high school with ended up passing away uh, senior year of college. And prior to that, I, I was really close with their family and his parents. And following his death, maintained a close relationship with them. And they're effectively like family okay. with me at this point. But um, I hadn't seen them for six months or so at the time. And so just was doing a generic uh, catch up, had dinner with my wife and, and them. And we're just hanging out at their house, having a bottle of wine and, and got to talk. And, and that very quickly rolled into you know, more serious investment conversation. Okay. So at this time, when you're projecting to the future, what was the number you thought you needed to have? Um, in terms of the capital, just to get the place open. Yeah. Yeah. So at the time it was, it was like a much smaller number than what it turned out to be. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think at the time I thought we could get it open for 450,000. And ended up, it ended up costing like seven fifty okay. to get everything open. Um, but I put in a little bit of money. The uh, my family friend and a few of his pals put in the rest of the equity, and then we got an SBA loan for two hundred fifty thousand. Um, and just getting the SBA loan itself was that was probably the most difficult part of the the fundraising, it took about a year to talk to 
30 or 40 banks before I could get somebody to, to sign off, um, not having any restaurant experience, not really having much in the way of assets. That's not the most attractive. Yeah. I was curious uh, about that. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, Baron, this was still like just a few years after the recession. Economy yeah. tanked, and so banks were very gun shy about doing lens in a business lens at all. Um, but I would say that's something I'm probably, you know, that's one of the things I'm more proud of just yeah. on the opening side is, figuring out how to get a, get a, get a loan under the circumstances. So I'm curious, um, with not having that experience, not really having the track record and the equity behind you to get the loan, what did you do right that pushed the banks over the edge? What, what was it that was appealing about you that you think enabled you to get this loan? I mean, I'd probably have to ask them. <laughs> In hindsight, I think I just, I, I was so... 300% serious and committed to this concept in this business and was willing to do literally whatever it took to, to get the money to get it open and just get it open and make sure it's successful that I think that translated somehow. Um, but as far as the underwriting is concerned, I, I don't really know what tip the scales with them. I mean, we, they have certain equity requirements. I mean, you can't come in with like, 10% of the money you need, you need the more equity you have on hand relative to debt, the better it's going to look. We had 60, 65% equity 30 and we we're looking for 35% debt. Um, and so I think that was a, a helpful factor, but at the same time, it was very easy for lots of banks to just say, you know, this doesn't really fit our profile. We're going to move on. So having the equity uh, is what you think, you know, getting to the point where you had that equity that had that equity is what you think maybe pushed them over the edge. I think having uh, enough equity to get them interested. And then I think it probably helps that I have a, had a legal background in a yeah. roundabout way. Yeah. Um, that does with the benefit of hindsight but uh, I think at the time it, it, I tried to communicate the how uh, how much upside there could be with the location and how the concept would really fit well with the bell line and I think combined with just the general passion that I had and have uh, perhaps that was enough to push them over the edge I don't okay. know so one other question before we move on. Um, you said originally you were thinking four hundred and fifty thousand, and ended up taking about seven hundred and fifty thousand. What were the things that you uh, didn't, uh, I guess, think about that ended up equating to seven hundred fifty thousand? Like the the difference of uh, like three hundred thousand um, dollars. I mean, pretty much everything. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I mean, the build out ended up taking six months longer than it was scheduled went way over budget. Uh, and it wasn't for like frivolous doodads or anything. Like I was, 
when it, wherever possible, it was kind of quasi DIY. If I can uh, source this, I mean, I, I sourced all the furniture, all the lighting, uh, and tried to get deals at every turn wherever I could. You know, used equipment, the whole shebang. But even so, it, the build out just ended up being more expensive. Uh, we hired uh, some of our staff quite a bit early, you know, earlier than I should have in hindsight. Ended up having a two month permitting delay at the very last minute, which completely screwed things up from operating capital standpoint. So I'd say we went like 150,000 over during the build out and then started to get pretty dry with operating capital because I was taking on more expenses than I should have at the time before we were really ready to open and didn't have any revenue. So it's like, all right, well, I've got payroll, I've got rent, I've got you know, all this other stuff, but we haven't made a dime yet. I can't just like not pay everybody. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the last, the last couple of months going into opening was like white knuckle. <laughs> uh, that was a very scary time. And just to add insult to injury, my wife and I had our first kid in July uh, of that year. And we ended up opening Ladybird middle of September. So it was like perfect storm. <laughs> so I mean, we hear it all the time on the show and it's like, whatever you think it's going to take, double it. Just get that extra. There's always something that you're going to you know, not think of uh, something that's going to come up, something that's going to get delayed and expense. that's going to, you know, just rear its head somewhere. So just get whatever it is. You think it is double it. Uh, and you're, you're almost there. Uh, I mean, you're not too far off from doubling what you thought it was originally going to take. So, um, all right. So any key lessons before, during the process of opening any like uh you know knowledge you can share with us that you know is unique to your experience that's worth going over before we move on to like really scaling the business um i think going in i knew you, you, you when you're starting up you don't know what you don't know and I tried to know as much of what I didn't know as I could, but still had to like acknowledge throughout the entire process that I still don't know a ton. And as to overcompensate for that or just compensate at all, this was definitely an all in proposition. Like I put in every nickel that we had saved. I spent every waking moment at the space, just you know, all over the contractors uh, could not have been more immersed in all facets of the opening and felt like going in that though I didn't have any experience on, on this side either. And we haven't really talked about it much, but the branding and marketing side, that to me was a huge lane that was unexplored in the Atlanta restaurant scene at the time. It's like you have uh, Instagram was just starting to like, it, it had been around for a minute, but it wasn't a big facet of restaurant marketing at the time. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me like there was the majority of restaurants in town. It's like, Bob's burgers. We sell burgers. Here's a picture of our burger. Come have a burger. Like there's no, there's nothing beyond that very surface level. And felt like if we could create a more, uh, holistic, nostalgic brand that could resonate 
beyond just the food and the beverage that we serve and, and kind of create almost a lifestyle brand. I thought that that could be a, a powerful uh, edge that would distinguish us from other restaurants in town. And so it worked really hard to build the design and the graphic design package and uh, our Instagram page and, and tried to get PR. It didn't have a PR rep or anything like that, but tried to drum up as much interest as I possibly could just by wearing out shoe leather prior to the opening. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm getting a little off track here, but as far as advice goes for this phase, first time opening, if you, you got to go all in, I mean, I, I think it's not like you can't just wing it. You got to take it you know, 300% seriously. You got to commit 24 seven to this and recognize that you don't know really what you're doing at all. And you're just going to have to have faith in the process and, and hopefully have good people around you. Yeah. So you just bring something up over. that I really want to dive into. Um, you didn't really have any experience uh, at all. Uh, you're opening a restaurant. How did you surround yourself with like a team of people that knew what they were doing? Like, how did you, how are you training people if you didn't have the experience? Like, how'd you go about setting yourself up for success under these circumstances? Um, to be perfectly honest, that, that was, that was a big missing link in the opening period is, uh, when we were trying to hire, I didn't have a big Rolodex of people in the industry. Um, nobody knew who I was. I mean, I was like complete nobody. I mean, still am for all intents and purposes. But if if you're a well-known name in town or really anywhere, it's much easier to attract talent. If you're an unknown and you don't have a big network, I mean, the restaurant industry is very much like who you know. Um, it was really hard to get people uh, hired. And so uh, for the first six, nine months, it was, it was grim in terms of the uh, talent pool that we had in house. And I'm not trying to slight any of the folks that uh, worked with us at the time, but yeah, there, it's not like I had a, a bunch of skilled advisors in my pocket. And I, for the life of me, can't really explain how we managed to win in our feet as we did. But two weeks before we opened our uh, executive chef quit either did a big story on it. We hadn't even opened yet. Like nobody really even knows who we are. And I've got to promote my sous chef into the exec role. We don't have a sous chef. We don't have a lead line cook. Like we don't really have any money in the bank. We got to freaking open. <laughs> like, what do you do? You know? Yeah. What did you do? Uh, I mean, we literally, promoted the sous chef opened. I had like 5,000 bucks in the bank at the time. Uh, didn't have the liquor license. We were still waiting on that. Did it on a BYOB basis and somehow managed within the first week to do enough business just to like cover payroll. Okay. So, uh, how did you evolve during this time of kind of being, you know, all over the place, kind of figuring it out as you go. Like, how'd you get to the point where now you, you four years later open two additional restaurants within a week from each other? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it, it was definitely not like something happened overnight. The, when we first opened Ladybird, we had maybe 35 employees. Uh, we were open for dinner only had plans to grow at brunch, had a good feeling that like we, we have a lot of outdoor space started with 
uh, maybe a hundred seats outside and conventional wisdom when you're doing a restaurant is you don't really want to have more than 25% outdoor seating relative to indoors. And we kind of did the opposite of that. Yeah. Why? So again, this is like, why is that so important? I'm well, cause I, yeah, cause I mean, we, I, I felt like with us being on the belt line, you have people walking, walking the dogs, riding the bikes. They're outside. If you have a very attractive outdoor space and there's really not much else offering that, it's, it should be, I don't want to say easy, but it should be a pretty attractive opportunity for people to make a pit stop, come in, have a beer, have a burger, whatever the case may be. So, and there's just not, I, you know, going into the opening, I looked at places like Austin, Texas, and, uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest. There's just, there's a lot more places in other markets that have huge outdoor spaces, and Atlanta doesn't really have that. And so it felt like if we could try to figure that out, then certainly people would get excited about it. So uh, as far as the opening period goes, the, the, and it's hard to explain without having a visual point of reference. The way the building is set up, the property line stops at the edge of our patio, and we have an elevated patio. It used to be a wagon dock in its prior life, and the space immediately adjacent to it if you walk down the steps off the patio, you're actually on city property. Um, and so when we opened, it was just grass. And I talked, and it, it's controlled by the belt line. So I reached out to them, had this plan to convert the outdoor space into what would eventually become what we call the Grove. Um, but it took a year and a half of going back and forth with them to get them to sign off on us effectively leasing that space and turning it into what it looks like now. But I knew that if I could just keep, keep my head above water and keep the place open until I could get control of that space, then I think I thought we would be in a really good spot, but it did take a year and a half and went through, you know, a couple of chefs or GM after three months, uh, caught our bar manager stealing after a month and a half. Like so it, after the, over the first couple of months, it was literally like me and, our opening sous chef were the only managers and we were reasonably busy. And so it was like, <laughs> we don't have any systems. We don't have any talent. People still are coming in, but we, you know, on a Friday or Saturday, we could be running like 40 minute ticket times. Uh, all signs point to like, this is a problematic uh, restaurant that could be in trouble. Um, but it started to, we started to turn the corner after maybe nine months in. And I knew all the while, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to have to like hire my way out of this. Um, started, I got one manager through my very limited network who turned out to be solid. They then over a period of six months brought in some of their friends that they had worked with who also turned out to be solid. And it took about a year to get stable, reliable management staff into the equation. Um, but the opening GM we had, like we literally didn't have any systems at all. Like it was just like people can do whatever they want. They can, you know, 
it's very laissez-faire. So uh, how did you was, start establishing those systems? Like what was the first system that you, you got established and how did you start working away from that mayhem to a structured and organized operation? Take accountability seriously and realize that it was going to be an uphill battle and that we were going to have to break a lot of the bad habits that started when we opened the place and with any sort of uh, staff that were still accustomed to having very little structure. Um, and so I, I give the manager that helped write the ship a lot of credit in terms of helping us see the future and uh, have the chutzpah and backbone to start chipping away at building better systems. And so put a lot of trust and faith in them that they could kind of attack things in the right order and uh, just start kind of nibbling away at, at a lot of the problems that we were having. So um, all the while, go, go ahead. I was going to say, reflecting back at that time, can you identify like two or three major corrections that really started to turn the ship around? Like uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned uh, slowly just hiring your way out of the, 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 the issue. So, you know, people and culture, that's a huge part of it. But what things was this manager doing? Uh, the big changes they, they made early on that really started to make an impact in your operation. Um, I'd say a big one was having the, the kitchen leadership directly report to the GM and not have the kitchen sort of not have the kitchen and the bar in their own Island with little accountability so that if everything can kind of be centralized through the GM from an accountability standpoint, then you can start to corral and herd the cats a little bit easier. So you establish um, a chain of command. There, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so I would say, I mean, that's the biggest one. And then the second is we just, we were understaffed from day one. And the combination of that with uh, the lack of systems made it very difficult to get to proper staff levels because the we were busy enough to where it was hard to allocate time properly. And if you don't have enough people and the people that you do have are not like, using their time well, how do you attract good people that want to actually come work in that type of environment? Well, the short answer is you don't. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so you kind of have to like fake it till you make it. Uh, and I think having turning the corner when we got the manager that helped us kind of steer things in the right direction, just through osmosis and starting to pull in a few of their friends, that was that to me was the tipping point where it's like, all right, we now have more than one person here who actually is into doing things the right way, uh, takes their job seriously, believes in systems, and we're all going to start speaking the same language. Mm. Awesome. Um, so any other big lessons in this time uh, of evolving and growing in catching stride at Ladybird that's worth diving into before we move on to why um, you, you took on the opportunities uh, to open two other restaurants within a week from each other? I'm really curious to dive into that. Um, I think just the, the, the need for resilience and persistence 
cannot be overstated. There were so many times where it's like this, you know, every, every stereotype of what can go wrong in a restaurant, like all happened within the first six months. And it's not like we were lucrative. We were just breaking even at best uh, on the financial side. And so I think it would have been very easy to just say, Hey, this is a tough business. I need to get, get out of here. Or like move on. Like this is, this is too much, but some, somewhere in the back of my head, I could see a more promising future for the, for the restaurant and just had to take it day by day, hour by hour, knowing all the while that it's probably going to take a while to get to where we want. And so just pushing through that, uh, to me is the biggest lesson that you just got to figure out a way to overcome whatever the circumstances are and think strategically enough to find a, find a way out and, and be better for it on the other end. So when the, 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 the tough times were present, what were you doing daily? What, what was your life? Like what, what kind of tricks were you leveraging to kind of show up with the right attitude to, to have that persistence? What, what advice do you have for us to do that? When you're leading a team, even if in the even if there's some tough times going on and, and drama in the workplace or things are not going as planned, you've got to sh- present the appearance of sanity and stability and uh, cool under pressure, uh, in spite of how silly it might appear under the circumstances. And I, I feel like I've got a fairly even keel demeanor, so that. Like if you're if you're acting like the building's burning, your team is going to go yeah. completely in the wrong direction. Mm. Uh, if you can show some degree of optimism and keep your cool and be nice and hospitable and just focus on the basics, that to me goes a long way toward motivating the staff. That hey, he might acknowledge that things are not perfect right now, but I still believe in the overall mission and feel inspired that this person can kind of help us get to a better place. What was the overall mission? Um, really, you know, something we have tried to formalize and articulate better. Now we didn't have a mission statement or uh, a set of company values or anything like that at the time. But I've said from the outset, my goal is to, uh, be the best place to work and dine in Atlanta period. Mm. Um, and so we were not even like, you know, one, one millionth of the way there when we opened were the first year or, you know, if you, if you say you're the best and think you're the best and act like you're the best, like that's annoying. Um, but as a goal and ambition, that's always been there. And I think just being competitive in a good natured way, trying to continually improve, trying to make sure that we're always, uh, you know, Wednesday's going to be better than Tuesday, Thursday's going to be better than Wednesday, so on and so forth. That to me is what gets me out of bed in the morning is just trying to make sure we're better at everything that we do every single day. Nice. Uh, and I've, I've tried to stay true to that since, since before we hit it. Awesome. Uh, before we go to the speed round, there's one thing I really kind of want to dive into uh, to learn more about, to kind of dissect. Uh, and that's this opportunity that you had in 2017. You opened Muchacho and Golden Eagle uh, three years after opening Lady Bird. Um, I mean, if, if somebody were to come to me and say, Eric, when do I know to open my second and third location? My advice to them would be when you have 
uh, so many people that are great working for you uh, that if, if you don't give them an opportunity, if they stop growing, they're going to go somewhere else. So you have to create that someplace else for them to go to grow into the, the next uh, level of their career. Um, opening two less restaurants um, almost simultaneously, I mean, did you have the people to uh, – I mean, was that what was going on in your situation? Were you moving people – up the ladder, were you creating opportunities for new people? Or, I mean, it seems like you, you really pulled from all over the place. Um, I, was, I read one article. I mean, you had people come, at least four or five names from like different restaurants that you were pulling from to put together um, the, uh, the team to open these other restaurants. Like, how did you make that happen? How did you pull that off? How did you attract your, all these people to yourself, especially in 2017 where everyone's starving to find good people? Like, I'm really curious about this. Yeah, so we've, we've I've sort of, uh, got a little long-winded talking about the opening period for Ladybird, but our fortunes really started to change about a year and a half in. And that's because I was able to finally get the, the, the additional outdoor space sorted up. Oh, that's with right. The city and the belt line and uh, ended up adding 5,000 square feet of space out there. Okay. Uh, and so we've got a, a beer garden section with like a dozen beer garden tables and then a much larger uh, section to the left of that with kind of outdoor loungy stuff with Adirondack chairs and kind of reclining camp chairs. And then we've got a camper, a 1960 Travelese camper that we turned to an outdoor bar. Okay. And so opened that in the spring of 2016 and our sales essentially doubled overnight. Oh, wow. We then had to uh, hire like crazy, went from 35 or 40 staff members in February of that year to about 70 uh, at the end of May. So our staff size doubled overnight. Our sales doubled overnight. That was like, it was basically like opening a new restaurant just right then and there. And I, I thought it was going to help with business. I thought we were going to go up like 20 or 25%. And so it was a major jolt to the first two weekends after the growth opened. It was like we had broken a record by a factor of like two or three oh, wow. uh, for a Saturday. So it's like, all right, well, it's a little different. Uh, we're going to have to re... And at that point, we had just started to like get a decent hold on things as far as systems go. So we had to like reboot absolutely everything that we do to keep up with the new volume. Um, but over that period that, that kind of coincided with us starting to attract better and better team members. And so by the time the dust settled in 2016, uh, third or fourth quarter that year, we had like a very solid management team, solid chef team, full-time events director, you know, good, good servers, good bartenders. It was, it was a pretty quick, it took about a year for us to really get a grasp of things, uh, operationally, but had, had, I would say like a very strong team by the end of 2016. And so one of the early, uh, managers that we brought in before we opened the Grove has now ended up becoming our director of operations and she was instrumental in recruiting other managers from around town and her network to come on board. And I would say 
with the exception of one of our hires for the new restaurants, all of them came from her network. Okay. So she had either worked with them in the past or had been friends with them for several years. And uh, I mean, she's kind of like my right arm at this point, but without, he, he became the GM at Ladybird and was instrumental in kind of building this, the team up. Uh, and so a big part of it was giving her the opportunity to grow with the company while also uh, just expanding our management team with really solid people that wanted to work in a fast-paced, you know, fast-growing, dynamic restaurant company. So uh, what's her title today? She, she's the director of operations. Director of operations. Okay. And she oversees so yeah, all three of the locations? Yeah, so we we have over the last couple months started to build things up at the management company level, and she's one of the director of operations. We have another director of operations. They have a few different subspecialties, but uh, she oversees all the restaurants from like an HR culture staff standpoint, and then the other DA that we have is more accounting. Uh, buildings and grounds, marketing, that side of the ledger. So today, what are your, what's your role? I mean, it sounds like when you first got started, you were working like you're in the trenches, you know, shoulder to shoulder with these guys trying to, you know, get to where you are today. But now that you have these systems developed, you've gotten all these incredible people on on the ship. What does your life look like? What are you doing? Um, It's, I mean, it's definitely changed quite a bit and, in the early days, I was not delegating at all. Like I literally would just, if I see something wrong, I would just go ahead and do it, which to me is effective in an emergency setting, but it doesn't really empower your team and your staff and doesn't solve whatever the problem is beyond like that moment. And so have tried to build things up in such a way where um, I'm kind of the I'm providing direction, leadership, advisement, uh, really driving brand and menu development across the board and making sure that the directors of operation have enough support to do what they need to do, make sure that we have uh, support at the management level. And, And I'm around all the restaurants all the time, but it's not, it's more just, I'm here if you need me. I'm gonna uh, hang out and make make sure everything's running smoothly. But I'm gonna be a little bit less physically involved so that I can hand over the reins and empower other people in the in the management team. Got you. So before we go to the speed round, anything that we haven't discussed yet, Michael, that you want to dive into? Um. I mean, <laughs> I could I could certainly flush out uh, any of these topics. I, you know, we haven't really talked that much about the growth period going from just Ladybird into the new restaurants. It that itself took a year and a half and was made possible based on the success of the expansion at Ladybird. And so, I just want to make clear that that wasn't like some flash in the pan, you know, zip, bang, boom, 
we're just going to go ahead and open two new places for the moment with a very protracted timeline or very accelerated <laughs> timeline. Uh, like that, that took a long time to, to flush out as well and was happening on a parallel track while we were continuing to grow and, okay. and, and build things up at Ladybird. All right. Um, I mean, we could go deeper into that um, if you want. Uh, I want to respect your time. We're at an hour and seven minutes recording. I've, I've, I've got I've got time if you want to. Yeah, so go going. go deeper. Uh, how did you? How were you juggling all those things? How did these opportunities come to you? And what was the key to making that you know go off without a hitch? Um, I think it you know behind the scenes when we opened Ladybird, it was choppy waters for sure. But I think externally at least we did a good job of presenting a compelling brand that people could get behind and, and connect with. And over time started to attract more and more uh, real estate opportunities for, for new spaces. And I've long had a, a long list of different concepts just in the, in the hopper in the event that there are, opportunities that are worth pursuing. And so I would say a couple months after we did the expansion at Ladybird um, was presented with another opportunity on the Beltline about a mile south. And it's in an old uh, like 1920s rail depot. Uh, the building itself is just loaded with charm. It has a Spanish style roof. Uh, it, it, it just has a big personality, has a large outdoor space. It checked a lot of the boxes, went and toured the space. It had been a restaurant recently. And so my calculation was, all right, well, it has plumbing, electrical, HVAC, a lot of the infrastructure in place. Surely this will be less expensive being a second generation space. A few light bulbs went off as far as concepts go. Um, it's close by the rent's not too bad. The belt line, and they haven't actually completed it yet, but they're supposed to be building it out down next to Golden Eagle and Muchacho. Uh, any minute now, there's a lot of development going on. It, it, it just, it seemed like a really good opportunity. And given how close it is to Ladybird, I was like, all right, well, you know, we can, we can probably make a go with this. Talked it over with the team and they were all on board. And so decided to sign the lease. Um, had, it was, uh, had to figure out how to like, you know, finance it, et cetera. But based on my early numbers and, and projections with the investors, they all said yes. And so the second go round, it was like, all right, I know, know what we're doing a little bit better, have a much deeper network. We've got a team in place. I'm getting a little less boots on the ground at Ladybird. We should be able to, to figure this out. Uh, and so ended up taking, between the day that we signed the lease and getting open, I think it took like 13 months. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was definitely not overnight, but... I felt like it was a fairly methodical, natural, organic process that made a lot of sense based on how close it was to yeah. the restaurant and being able to keep a tight home base. 
So you said uh, you mentioned that it was a second generation location. Uh, a lot of the things that you would need in place were already in place. Uh, were there was that the case? Was it an easier open, or were there things that kind of came out of the you know, uh, you know, I guess surprises or anything that might have caught you off guard that you weren't anticipating that you can cover? Yeah, I mean it. It also ended up going considerably over budget. Uh, we had to start over with the electrical which th- that in and of itself ended up being like 125,000. Um, th- had to rework a lot of the plumbing. So all, all my assumptions as far as like, Oh, it'll be easy. Cause like a restaurant was already here. Like that was complete nonsense. Um, so basically what happened, it sounded like the, the codes had changed in the time that that restaurant was in existence. So you got to really take into consideration, uh, what has evolved in the, the standards of the industry as far as uh, regulations that would maybe this, this location was grandfathered. Is that was, is that what, wow, I can't talk. Is that what was going on during this time? No, it, it wasn't a zoning change so much as, uh, I mean, my, my feelings are with the second generation space there's a couple approaches. One is just to be like, Oh, well, they've got a bar, they've got lights, they've got doors. Let's just put a different sign out front, you know, maybe a new coat of paint, cut the lights on and call it a day. That's really not like, I think that can be effective under certain circumstances, but if, if the prior restaurant has any sort of following or any sort of uh, presence to it, you've got to shake the ghosts, out of the space and do enough of a spatial reconfiguration. So people don't walk in and say like, Oh, it used to be such and such. Um, so as a result, we ended up moving the bar building, uh, you know, a big wall to separate, to close the space into two dining areas, uh, completely redid the patio. Like it was, I mean, for all intents and purposes, we just did a complete, reboot top to bottom. Um, and so I think I underestimated the amount of new construction work that would go into doing what I thought were kind of minor reconfigurations, which turned out to be like, no, actually you have to just completely start over with these pieces of the infrastructure that are technically here, but are not going to work for what you're trying to get. I got you. Uh, any last thoughts before we go to the speed round? Uh, drop it on us now. Um, we can we can just hit the gas into the speed round if you like. All right, let's do it. So we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Everyone loves processing invoice after invoice. It's the best. <laughs> Not really. Just the sight of a filing cabinet is enough to make you sick, right? It doesn't have to be that way. With Sorcery, there's no more manually processing invoices by hand and no more cutting check after check. With Sorcery, you can organize all of your accounts digitally, scan your invoices, and pay your vendors with just one click. It is easy. Sorcery offers fully managed accounts and statements reconciliation, so you no longer spend hours on the phone with your vendors and banks that stinks. You now have the peace of mind knowing your accounts are being taken care of, and you can get back to work doing what you love, running unstoppable restaurants. Go to GetSorcery.com, that's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com, or call one 6683006691 mention restaurant unstoppable and receive 10% off your first 3 months 
and say goodbye to your old filing cabinet and hello to the digital world with Sorcery AP Automation. To be unstoppable, most restaurants require a little extra capital from time to time. It happens, right? Uh, when you need funding to like renovate or buy equipment or manage cash flow, you don't have time to just track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. And that is where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. And if you apply online, you'll get a decision right away, which is pretty awesome. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You'll never have to reapply to take out additional loans, and you only pay for the funds you use. Yeah, you're impressed, and I haven't even gotten to the impressive part. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 businesses from every industry with over $4 billion in funding. Like, awesome. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company not once, but twice. Check out Cabbage at Cabbage with a K dot com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That's Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash restaurant unstoppable. Line of credit is subject to credit approval, C terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member FDIC. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Um, trust your team first, early and often, and ask questions later. Mm, I like it. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? Uh, I would say myself. I can, I'm my own biggest critic and I can overanalyze things to death. So I've got to uh, oftentimes just turn it off and make a decision and move on. What's one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Um, I like to, we have pretty conversational interviews, but I like to ask uh, particularly front house people what they like to cook in their free time. And that to me will typically reveal like, Hey, if they like to cook at all, if they do and they, know a fair bit about cooking, then it, to me, it's more likely that they're passionate about the industry and uh, are more likely to kind of go all in with what we're doing relative to folks that don't necessarily eat out very much or, or don't appreciate food at, at the same level. Okay. Uh, what's a current challenge today? Um, I'd say our biggest challenge is really just building up the management company and making sure that we uh, have enough synchronization across the restaurants so that we're speaking the same language, no matter which building we're in, uh, have coherent company culture across locations and making sure that things are running smoothly uh, across locations. And what practices are you leveraging or tools that you're leveraging to, to accomplish that? We have been using task world at the, management company level, which is like a project management software and helps with uh, just agendas and deadlines and sort of internal accountability. I found that pretty interesting. Um, I'd say that's, that's kind of the biggest one for us at the moment. Okay. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. These are like core values, ways to be, way, ways to behave. Um, something we preach is uh, even if you don't know the right answer, the right solution, always try as hard as you can. 
and what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Um, we, we try to encourage everyone to put themselves in the guest's shoes and imagine them serving themselves. Like if you're putting a plate of food out or literally serving them, if you're serving yourself, would you like the kind of service you're getting? Would you like how the plate looks? Would you like how the food tastes? Uh, would you serve this to yourself or to your grandmother? Uh, if you think, think things through that lens, we feel like you'll have a higher standard of service and higher, uh, just level of care for the job. Yes. Empathy is the word. It's so crucial in this industry. Uh, the next question is what is one book that's a must read to make you a better person or a restaurant operator? I have been chewing on the uh, Zingerman's series. I don't know if you're familiar at all, but I think that is just absolutely stuffed to the gills with uh, pearls of wisdom and, and, and tools for kind of guiding organizations through a lot of different periods in their life. Uh, So I, I, that's kind of become my Bible and would recommend it with, you know, absolute, uh, certainty to anyone thinking about the restaurant business at all. Yeah, and, and it's uh, I think it's is it four books. Um, I mean, he's got multiple. He's also got like the standards of service. I'm not sure if that's included in like the the the, the string the Zermans an an anarchist approach to fill in the blank. I think the first one's like building a better business and then becoming a better leader, uh, then uh, leading oneself. Uh, I think there's one more that I can't remember. Is it developing values or uh, do you know the fourth one? I have I have three on the bookshelf. Uh, there very well might be a fourth. So I think I think you're right on that, but I only have the first three. Yeah, um, great series of books. Uh, the way that Ari Weinswag writes these books are in paragraph or like essay form. So it doesn't like string from one chapter to the next chapter. It's just like you know you read a chapter and like the chapter ends. It's a whole new subject, a whole new uh, like like essay that he wrote. Uh, and he kind of just like grouped all these essays that he wrote over the years together into like categories. You can think of it that way. Um, and I love his, his values. I love his thoughts. Uh, it's definitely, I think all, all of his books should be on the, the, the shelves of every restaurant owner out there for sure, man. So thank you for recommending those. I love his work. And um, yeah, share, awesome. yeah, share an online resource or tool that uh, you've been leveraging. Uh, you already mentioned task force or was it task force or task world. Uh, are there any uh, other task, task world? Yeah. Are there any other tools that you're leveraging or the online resources? Um, yeah. So we use FinTech for alcohol vendor management, which is a huge time saver. They handle all the backend payments for alcohol deliveries. So they can just kind of like come in, check an order and hit the road. Uh, and then there's a ton of analytics and tools that you can use to kind of better understand your ordering, uh, reconcile inventory, all that good stuff. So we've been a huge fan of FinTech over the last couple of years. Is that S-I-M-T-E-C-H, uh, SimTech? No, it's uh, fin, FinTech, sorry, like a shark fin oh, or okay. like F-I-N tech. And what's the biggest impact? It's like 50 bucks a month. It's, it's awesome. What's the biggest impact that's had in your operation? Um, just... You know, any, I feel like anytime we get out the checkbooks, it's a waste of time. And so just cutting down use of the checkbook has been really helpful. But then on top of that, being able to see plain as day, 
with all vendors in one place without us doing a lot of input. Uh, it, like it, it all automatically populates all your invoices, ordering like everything, and you can manipulate it and download it into spreadsheets and, and all that jazz. So it's, it's, if you can just like order, do your Apple order, then you have everything you need to understand the information really quickly. Cool. First time edge on the show too. So thank you for sharing that. And the last question, it's a big one and it's a doozy. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Dude. All right. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? So this is a, a bit sappy, but, uh, my, grandmother was a big, uh, inspiring figure in my life. And she, over the last year of her life, she was, uh, kind of winding down with medical care and it was, everyone knew that she was not going to make it much longer. Um, but she still had her, her wits about her and was just an incredible person. If I had more time, I'd give you like the short bio, but, uh, I, under the circumstances I asked her, I was like, Hey, grandma, what's what's your secret to living a good life and she says three things try the hardest in everything that you do never tell a lie always give your friends and family the shirt off your back and uh that's stuck with me ever since and it's something i i kind of try to keep in the forefront uh with work and life and, and everything in between Beautiful, awesome way to end this thing. Thank you so much, Michael. And uh, we wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. So who's one independent restaurant operator, uh, somebody that you admire and think would make a great guest mentor on the show? Um, They're more in the kind of food production business, but they do have a, a couple small locations as well. Uh, they're good friends of mine. It's really two brothers that started the company based in Atlanta, Nick and Steve Karst, and they're behind King of Pops. So they're like a, a big popsicle company now, um, but they have a million satellite businesses and uh, are hustlers in the nth degree, really inspiring guys. Uh, I think that they would be a lot of fun to get on your show. Uh, that was Nick and Steve Karst. Yeah, Nick and Steve Karse, C-A-R-S-E, and they uh, found and run King of Pops in Atlanta. Nick and Steve, lookouts, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And let the folks at home know, Mike, how can we connect with you if you want to uh, ask a question about your story or maybe just follow your work? What's the best way to connect? Um, best way is just to follow us on Instagram through any of the restaurants, and our handles are Ladybird Atlanta. Uh, Muchacho ATL and Golden Eagle ATL. All right. I'll have those links in the show notes. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash Michael Lennox. That's M I C H A E L L E N N O X. Uh, and I'll have all the links right there as well as a summary of today's discussion. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your advice. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you so much, Eric. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> Cheers. 
Well, there's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Michael Lennox crushing it. Great advice today. Thank you, Michael. I think the big takeaway for me listening to this conversation, just finishing up the editing process, is that there are so many areas of entry into this industry, uh, so many angles you can get in. And typically, I think the the best way to do it is by going to work for the best and learning from the best uh, within the industry. But Michael has proof that uh, you can go get other skills and create other, uh, I guess, um, assets for yourself. For Michael, that was his knowledge in law and his knowledge in real estate. I think those were the two things that really were, were probably helped him become successful, but also his passion for food and beverage and the restaurant scenes, uh, just surrounding himself as a, a guest uh, and really learning as much as he can from the outside looking in. Uh, but beyond that, I think, you know, the, the, the big thing you need to take away from today's conversation is if uh, you aren't strong in certain areas, if you don't have the experience, no one to get out of the way and surround yourself with those who do. And I think that's what Michael did, and he's such a great, shining example of knowing your lane and finding those who are strong where you're not strong, uh, and trusting them and letting them do their thing and giving them opportunity to grow, uh, letting them, uh, you know, uh, I guess just progress as human beings. And when you care about other people, you create opportunity for other people and you trust them, uh, beautiful things can happen. I think this story is a great example of that. So uh, again, Michael Lennox, thanks for coming on the show. Also, we got some great advice on just uh, real estate and uh, things to consider when negotiating a lease. And there are little nuggets all over the place in today's conversation. All right, guys, I'm about to head back to the United States, wrapping up my two months uh, between Thailand and Australia. It's been a trip, but uh, after maybe acclimating back to East Coast time, maybe spending a, a month with some family and uh, getting a game plan put together. I want to get back on the road. I want to go back on the road uh, and and do what I was doing in the beginning of January, uh, meeting these restaurateurs face-to-face, really connecting on a personal level, and just going to community to community, extracting the mentors I can, and I need your help to make it happen. So if you are in the mountains, I'm talking the Rockies, I want to hit the Rockies. I also want to hit the West Coast. Uh, maybe start in the northwest Washington, work my way down. If you're in any of those states on the west coast, let me know. I need a floor to put my air mattress on, a spare bed, a couch, or even a driveway to park my car. Reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, Eric Catchatori, and Facebook slash restaurant unstoppable. Uh, please help me out. And then uh, also keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help validate my hard work. Lastly, if you really want to support this show, please share it with anybody you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. You are the average of the five people you surround yourself with in with this podcast. Man, I've got over 460 mentors just waiting to share their story their advice, their recommendations with you. You will become the average. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.